Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean, Stuart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Another busy week. Uh, Double barrel show. We're going to, in the first half, update on the Johnston saga. More twists and turns to unpack for Hub listeners. The last seven days, we'll give you our thoughts and analysis. And then on the back half of the show, let's talk fires. Uh, Sean Spear has been down in New York City. Um, I hear, Sean, that you've like hidden all your Canadian paraphernalia. Uh, (laughs) They are hunting Canadians down on the streets of New York. Um, You are sine qua non, the cause, the blame for... (laughs) These bizarre photos, though, in all seriousness, Sean, these bizarre photos of the New York, Washington, D.C. skyline, planet Mars. Yeah, it's been pretty wild. We had to take the Canadian flag off our backpacks as we uh, (laughs) navigated around uh, the apocalyptic world that is midtown Manhattan. At the best of times. <laughs> uh, but let's uh, let's go to the, the Johnson Inquirer, and I want to come to you first, Stuart, to update us. I mean, this story just won't die. Uh, we had the hearings this week, uh, some interesting revelations there. And then end of week, um, another kind of misstep by the special rapporteur. Um, he had hired a communications firm well-known in Canada called Navigator, who turns out the Globe and Mail seems to have found out briefly for a period of time was advising Han Dong, the MP who uh, was removed, left the Liberal caucus, sitting as an independent, allegations swirling around him about uh, supposed alleged interactions with the Chinese consulate here in Toronto. Stuart, David Johnston just can't seem to get a break. Yeah, the committee was, it wasn't one of those committees where there was sort of a kill shot or there was some big embarrassing moment, but it was a slog. And at times, my feeling was that Johnson didn't have full command of his uh, report. And there were moments where he seemed genuinely confused or unable to answer questions about what he had found out or why he hadn't asked this person or that person to um, talk to him. And there, you know, we talked a little bit about the the Bill Blair thing where it's not entirely clear how he would have been briefed or why he wasn't briefed. And the conversation around that it seemed to me like Johnston was kind of dancing because he didn't fully understand the processes involved. And there were questions where it seemed like he couldn't actually answer uh, what, a, what a briefing would look like. And I, you know, honestly, I just felt for him the whole time. It's tough. I've been there as a reporter. I mentioned this last week where you didn't have time to fully get the story and you feel a little bit exposed because there, you know there's more out there. And that was the feeling I got. Um, the opposition, I thought, did a pretty good job of, of pushing him on this stuff and getting into the details of the re- report. And I thought he did a pretty poor job of explaining some of that stuff. Maybe just a couple of observations off the top for me, Rudyard, before I, I turn it over to you. Uh, the, the first is that, uh, to Stuart's point, 
the committee appearance by Mr. Johnson, I think, displayed the the fact that we've been talking about uh, for a couple of weeks now, which is that he was ultimately dependent on the government to decide what materials to share with them and uh, what analysis to share. And of course, uh, by definition, that impedes his ability to carry out a, a genuinely independent investigation. You guys know as well as anyone that if you're in control of the documents, if you're in control of that information flow, you effectively control the narrative. And I think the most damning, I'll disagree slightly with Stuart. I agree that there was no, you know, so-called knockout punch, but I think the most damning part of the, of the appearance was when he essentially conceded um, that he was operating with the information he had. And it sounds like the information that was shared with uh, former conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, uh, was not only different, but more substantive. Um, and, and, and that really speaks to the fact that he ultimately wasn't in control of what he saw and, and how he saw it. The, the second point I would just raise, and maybe we can talk about this later, but I wanted to kind of put a, a flag in the ground. Uh, one of the things that has gone underreported in this conversation, particularly uh, as it relates to the hiring of Sheila Block, uh, as a counsel to support uh, David Johnston. Uh, uh, and we've since discovered, of course, that she has close proximity to the Liberal Party and the government, is that we do not presently, guys, have a, an ethics commissioner in place. You'll recall that the um, past ethics commissioner stepped down in mid-April um, because of a perception of conflict of interest with respect to her um, familial relationship with Dominic LeBlanc, uh, a uh, uh, high high profile member of the Trudeau cabinet. And as long as that position remains vacant, now approaching two full months, uh, the office itself is not able to investigate allegations of conflict of interest or 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 ethics issues. And and you know, I'm not saying anyone in this particular case uh, is in a conflict of interest or has contravened um, the act. But it does seem like a problem that uh, if we don't have a commissioner in place, the act is, for all intents and purposes, non-enforceable. Uh, and, you know, it seems to me it that in and of itself sort of symbolizes uh, a growing sense amongst the Canadian public um, that this government is starting to uh, sort of fall into uh, past practices when it comes to entitlement and, and arrogance and, and all the rest. Well, that's a great uh, insight about just you can't enforce the act if you don't have a, a commissioner. And is that just convenient or is it just the result of a bogged down, you know, appointment process? Um, Stuart, I guess one thing I've struggled with this week and it kind of it, it would resurface at the end of the week with the navigator story and um revelations from the globe that navigator had been advising Han Dong. Um, and I guess nobody had told David Johnston of this. Um, then you kind of wonder about the Sheila Block situation. Um, was he aware that she was a donor to the liberal party? Um, he in turn, you know, was selective in his disclosures, frankly, I think at the committee about the extent of his relationship with the Trudeaus. Um, I think you can credibly point that there is more than just 
a casual arm's length uh, relationship between these two people. And I just, I put this all together, Stuart, because just, it's such a strange scenario to be in where clearly there's a, there's a crisis of confidence that we're trying to deal with the effects of election interference on the public. And by any fair measure, if that is your challenge to address that, to assuage that, that sense of uncertainty and distrust that's kind of creeped into our democratic institutions and democratic processes as a result of election interference, you would just think that appearances matter, that in fact, they matter more, not less. So again, you go to Frank Iacobucci, a person that you say is a lifelong friend to get the letter to supposedly absolve you of conflict. You discount, again, your legal counsel's uh, multi-decade history of involvement with the Liberal Party and donations over the last 10 or so years. You, I guess, aren't told by Navigator, or I don't know, something whereby you end up using the same communications firm that was advising Han Dong. It's just, I don't know, is it just ineptitude? Is it uh, willful blindness? I, Stuart, help me here. It's just, it. this didn't happen just once now. This has happened like four or five times to the special rapporteur, either of his own uh, fault or consequence of his own actions or the result of people who are closely associated with him in the delivery of his work. Yeah, he is specifically at committee. Johnson said he hadn't asked her and she hadn't mentioned it on Sheila Block on the donations and that it never would have occurred to him to do that because she's such a person of integrity. And she's he kept saying she's the preeminent lawyer in the land. Um, there was a lot of that kind of rhetoric. And I, you know, we talked a little bit, we joked about that preamble that people do when they talk about David, David Johnston, you know, he's a preeminent Canadian, he's a great guy, and you can't talk about him without doing this 30-second spiel about how great he is. I, I, that's got to have an effect on someone, right? Um, he mentioned his own integrity at the committee. And, you know, we've had a little bit of blowback at the hub from people who say even to question him or even to criticize him is wrong. I wonder if these people aren't doing him a bit of a disservice because they're giving him the impression that he's beyond reproach. And that's the sense I got at the committee that, you know, we're not talking about a, a, a lock of a conflict of interest here. We're talking about the perception of a conflict. And we're talking about, you know, Canadians having trust in this investigation. And if you are David Johnson, if you're the liberal government and you're trying to get a report that Canadians will trust and, and you believe it to be exculpatory, you need them. You need these things not to be swarming all over you at committee meetings. You need to not have these little mini scandals. Um, so it is definitely I. What I saw at committee was a man who maybe fairly, because people have been telling him this for decades, believed that he was beyond that kind of scandal. Um, and you know, this is what happens in governments when they go on too long. Is they think because they have good motives, you know, this stuff can't apply to them. Um, that's it's just not the case. Uh, let me take up the subject of integrity, but pull it up a few thousand feet. Um, we've been talking a lot about um, the appointment of Mr. Johnston, um, the, the nature of his investigation, the outstanding questions about, as you say, Stuart, perceptions of conflict of interest and all the rest. Um, but a really fundamental point of integrity in our parliamentary system uh, is um, 
acknowledging and uh, being responsive to the the will of Parliament. And I thought Michael Chong's um, line of of argument in the House of Commons this week um, that on multiple occasions the majority of members of the House of Commons have spoken in votes in favor of uh, a full public inquiry, and the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. And by extension, David Johnston continued to uh, ignore away those votes is something that we shouldn't diminish. You know, we try to stay. um, Yes, of course, at the hub, we're following timely, relevant stories like this one. But we're also committed to some just basic foundational principles. And uh, the uh, our Westminster model, our parliamentary system is part of that. And this isn't the first time that the government has done this. You'll recall, guys, um, that we had a similar case last year where um, Parliament voted several times in favor of um, uh, of uh, the government sharing documents with respect to the Winnipeg uh, lab scandal. And not only did the government ignore uh, those votes, it actually took the Speaker, a member of the, 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 the Liberal Party, uh, to court. Uh, now, some listeners will say, well, you know, you belong to the Harper government. The Harper government similarly at times turned its nose to parliament. And I, I take the point. Um, um, but it seems to me um, it's 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 not good when, when either major party does it. Um, and on something as fundamental as um, national security and the integrity of our democracy, um, the, the fact that those votes have um, been ignored um, at the same time that the government is moving forward to um, make permanent uh, hybrid sitting, so uh, parliamentarians can vote from on on key votes from anywhere. Uh, uh, you know, I think actually does bring into question um, the integrity of of our parliamentary institutions um, in a way that uh, is 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 unbecoming to the country and frankly unbecoming to the government. Yeah, great, Sean. You, you know, we often just forget this that. Parliament, parliamentarians, MPs, are the only part of our government that is elected by you, me, and everyone listening to this podcast. The executive is not elected. The bureaucracy is not elected. The security staff uh, agencies are not elected. So the one part of government that's been most affected by Chinese election interference has basically been told by the prime minister, by the security officials, and now by David Johnston, tools down, hands down, you know, back back to your benches, uh, ladies and gentlemen um, of the parliamentary caucuses uh, in parliament, we've got this. It affects you. You were the source of the targeting. We're not going to give you the information or the processes that you're requesting for to fulfill your constitutional duty to hold us to account. That to me is the is the tragedy in all this, is that as you say, Sean, this is an issue of national security. There is nothing, in a sense, more important for the federal government or the federal parliament than to exercise its constitutional responsibility to hold the government, the security services, uh, the executive to account, and David Johnston for his set of circumstances, and we can accept them or not. Its latest polls now suggest that majority of Canadians do want a public inquiry. Certainly, majority of the House of Commons expressed multiple resolutions saying 
a public inquiry is needed. And yet here we go, Stuart. Parliament neutered, the public ignored, and you're just going to have to trust us. That's what this whole thing seems to come down to at the end of the day. Trust us. Yes. We've got this. Yes. We don't need, in a sense, the Constitution. We don't need to see our our democratic institutions at a moment when they're under threat from a foreign power actually affect and execute on their constitutionally mandated responsibilities. We're just going to forego that. I don't know, Stuart. It's our, our reaction to this crisis is almost as bad, frankly, as the evidence of the, the surfacing of the crisis itself. Yeah. And I, I think that's worth remembering that there's a dual purpose here. One is to investigate what happened. And the other one is to make sure Canadians continue to trust these institutions. And, um, you know, they may be at cross purposes sometimes, um, but I think they should be thinking about both these goals. And the polling is pretty clear in a public inquiry. The uh, reasons against it that we keep hearing from the government and from David Johnson at committee and, you know, from others are just not convincing. Um, they When we've had similar kinds of inquiries in the past, it's just hard to to take these at face value, these defenses um, or these criticisms of the idea. Um, I thought that Michael Chong in particular was good on this too, on defending parliament uh, in committee. And that was another area where Johnson just didn't have a good response where, you know, Chong said, they've taken away all of our ability to investigate this. You could give that back with the public inquiry. Um, there's no great response to that. And I think going ahead, we're going to go into an election. And I actually, the more this goes on, the more I worry about how this issue will be surfaced during an election campaign where people are worried about the election itself. And that's what we're talking about. And, you know, what we saw in the States uh, when people start to doubt election results, it, I think it's more concerning than it, we've actually um, realized at this point. I think that's something that's going to be a live issue um, and really hard for both parties to take on. Yeah, and you know, David Johnson, in his answers to Michael Chong and others, keeps invoking uh, ENSICOP and these other parliamentary committees. But it, I don't know if he knows or he just chooses to elide the fact that they're appointed by the prime minister. They are not committees of parliament. They serve at the pleasure of the prime minister. They receive whatever information the prime minister and the executive chooses to give them. This is not accountability as the founders of our constitution imagined. Yet David Johnston, Sean, I'll give you the last kick of the can on this topic. He's playing along with this. And I, I don't know, I, I hope, I hope if there could be something actually to come out of this, because he seems determined now to barrel on with these hearings, to replicate all the hearings that parliamentary committees have done and to come up with his own recommendations. If there was one recommendation, it would be to create a proper committee of parliament for national security, like they have in Great Britain, like there exists in the US Congress. I don't know, maybe maybe he could go in that direction. I certainly wouldn't hold my breath. Yeah, yeah, that seems like uh, the, the lowest hanging fruit. Um... The other thing, of course, that hopefully this experience, um, as unedifying as it's been, um, does is to uh, remind Canadians the importance of investing in national security and defense. As we've discussed on this podcast, and I've talked to David Frum a lot in our regular biweekly series with him, um, Canadian governments, successive Canadian governments dating back for some time, 
have been uh, have been free riders on these issues um have in a world of scarcity uh have dedicated most federal resources to things that oftentimes uh are are primarily provincial or local matters and have neglected section 91 of the constitution and um if you needed a, a more powerful reminder that ottawa has uh, awesome responsibilities. And as you say, uh, Rudyard, first order responsibilities around our national security and our national interests, the, the past several months have demonstrated that. And, and so, you know, uh, hopefully we see something of a rebalancing um, to how the federal government thinks about um, the dedication of scarce resources between core functions of the national government and uh, some of the <laughs> some of the things that we've seen in the past several years, where you're like, if you want to be the mayor of a mid-sized Canadian city, go run for mayor. Um, but you're sitting in the national parliament, and you ought to be uh, your first commitment ought to be to the awesome powers that Section 91 sets out for our national government. Great insight, Sean. Okay, guys, let's take a break. Back on the other side, we're going to talk uh, forest fires in Canada. Ash clouds falling out across the United States, including where Sean is joining us from this week, New York City. Uh, what does this all mean for climate policy? Um, where are the anxiety points that are emerging in kind of public opinion as these types of events do press down on people's anxiety, their sense of what the future could hold in a world of increasing climate change? We'll get that right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our free weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive complimentary email newsletter right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Friday Roundtable. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson our editor-in-chief of The Hub, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. I'm your erstwhile executive director. And guys, on the back half of the show, we got to talk uh, forest fires. Um, I don't know about you, but um, yeah, it's been a kind of uh, discombobulating week. Uh, I've seen the return of masks on the streets here in Toronto as people uh, mask up, not to fight a pathogen, but to fight combat particulates it's not a good look guys um it's it i don't know but it seems to me to create a sense of public anxiety about what a future in a warming planet could be we just had a little bit of a flash forward into a hotter planet earth i don't know how you take this sean let me come to you first you're in new york city New Yorkers are known for their grit, um, and I'm not talking wildfire particulate between their fingernails. Um, I'm talking can-do spirit. So, what's the mood there? Yeah, it's it's been it's pretty eerie. Um, uh, Wednesday, in particular, uh, by about midday, um, you know, the skies turned yellow and orange, and um, you could smell smoke uh, wh wherever you are. Um, uh, you know, I, I would say 
there is something I think of an ongoing debate about the relative role of climate change broadly defined uh, in this particular case versus um, arson and, and other factors. Um, but irrespective of the underlying cause, I think we do have proof, guys, that when these types of phenomenon occur, um, public concern or interest in climate change seems to rise. You know, I remember back in 2006, 2007, after the Harper government was first elected, I think it's fair to say at that point, its climate agenda was pretty narrow and modest. And I don't know if you guys remember, 2007 was a very mild winter, such that even people like my dad, who hadn't, you know, weren't thinking deeply about climate change, were just looking around thinking something weird is going on here. Um, and the Harper government had to put uh, John Baird in the environment minister role in, in order to kind of push back against those issues because there was a, it became something of a, a vulnerability. It was really only until uh, the global financial crisis that climate then slid back down the, the priority list. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to kind of think we, we, we are in the midst of rising inflation or at least um, uh, stubbornly high inflation. Uh, this week, of course, we had an interest rate hike. You know, stay tuned for a really um, fascinating set of insights on the subject from our erstwhile executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. Um, but I guess that's a long way of saying, guys, it'll be interesting to see whether uh, this experience, which affected people not just in Canada, but but across the continent, uh, raises the salience of climate change um, and, and puts pressure particularly on the conservatives to set out a climate agenda, or if what people are fundamentally concerned about uh, is the economy and um, the bite that a rising interest rates will, will impose on household budgets. Thanks, Sean. Um, Stuart, I guess what I struggle with a bit here is that, you know, the Liberal uh, Party here in Canada has talked a good game on climate. They've attached some very ambitious uh, net zero goals, electrification of the car fleet um, by 2035. I mean, these are outsized kind of policy pledges. Um, I would give them credit that they, they did institute a carbon tax. So to the extent to which they're delivering on a mandate that they received to, to act on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, they've done something important from a policy perspective. But the tail of the tape is, isn't great for Canada. Our GHG emissions as megatons really have not, um, not in any way decreased. We're adding, you know, in this last year, over a, a million uh, new entrants, some of them permanent residents, some of them students and others into Canada. Um, when you join Canada, you're joining one of the high, highest per capita global emitters in the world. Uh, and you're taking people from lower emitting jurisdictions on a per capita basis and bringing them into bringing them into this country. So you're you're contributing through immigration to higher rates of emissions for Canada and globally. I don't know. I just feel like there's so many cross currents here. Uh, no one seems to, I think, credibly own this file, but maybe I disagree a bit with Sean. I think this last week wasn't just a blip. I think this, again, 
has to be understood as being layered on to all the other anxieties that we are facing right now, from inflation to the largest you know, ground war in Europe, which has just seen the start of a Ukrainian counteroffensive, to the existential threat of AI, which we'll debate at my Monk debate on June 22nd, shameless plug, uh, you know, to whatever other existential pathogen or something you want to come up with. You know, people have coined this term, the poly crisis, right? That we're not just simply dealing with one crisis, we're dealing with a multitude of crises. And I think that ups the stakes for political parties. They can't just treat these things as a one-off. Yes, there were bad wildfires in Siberia two years ago. Yes, the Amazon rainforest was burning last year. I get all that. It makes sense, but you have to politically understand it in the context of a deeply stressed out public at this moment who is experiencing the poly crisis and wants someone to do something to lower their level of anxiety. Yeah, I, I, th I think a lot about the insight by the pollster Daryl Bricker on this, which is that the, the fate of our um, two major parties kind of relies on whether suburban people vote with the rural folks or whether they vote with the city folks on the other side of them. And, you know, I, that's that's me and the, the parents that I talk to when I drop off my daughter at school. And I I don't think that we know for sure because there's two elements to this. One is that, you know, you can't help but be a little unnerved when you're dropping your six-year-old off at school and the sky is yellow and you can taste smoke in your mouth. And my daughter was wearing a mask of her own volition. She just chose to do that. Um, it is a, not a good feeling. And that will be part of it. And I think the conservatives should think about what would happen to their campaign if something like this happened during the 30 days of an election campaign or flooding or something like that. Would they have a response? And I, I you know, that's a tough one. It is really tough because that's one of those issues the liberals have just owned, um, you know, for 10 years. And the other part of it, though, is that there we haven't really seen much in the way of costs for this. They've started, and they're not insignificant right now, but they are going to get a lot higher. And I wonder, when you talk to the sort of average suburban folks who theoretically worry about climate change, but feel like they're bearing a lot of costs, you know, whether they're fair costs or unfair costs, there's just a lot of them right now, um, are they going to take on more? Are they going to change their lifestyle? Um, if you're in Alberta, are, are you going to see an entire industry start to decline in a way that uh, means your life changes? Your your quality of life is going to go tangibly down. And I actually don't know where that line is or when that starts to have electoral implications, because, you know, we know that sort of theoretically people who care about climate change um, in the suburbs vote for the liberals. But, you know, inflation's creeping into a lot of people's budgets. So I wonder what the tolerance is on that. And, you know, two years from now or one year from now in an election campaign, we may find out. Yeah. Then there's the the broader economic costs. You know, I would presage uh, pre for listeners tomorrow at the Hub, we're running a long form original essay um, by three leading uh, economists, um, Chris Reagan, uh, Paul Rochon, the former deputy minister of finance, and Mark Tricard from Summon Fraser University, which models out um, different scenarios with respect to emissions reduction, reductions and their economic costs. Um, because there are trade-offs here, and it's important that we understand those trade-offs and uh, we implement a climate plan that 
that has its most bang for its buck when it comes to emissions reductions on one hand and the economic costs, including uh, consumer prices and job losses um, on the other hand. And I, I would just say, guys, um, I, I do think that this is probably something of a vulnerability for the conservatives. Um, you, you know, I think I'm I'm persuaded by the argument that the environment may not be a top, say, three issue for most voters, but it is something of a threshold issue, particularly in and around uh, the city of Toronto, uh, by which I mean people need to feel sufficiently satisfied that you have a credible plan before they'll look at the rest of your policy program. Um, I think that was the bet that Aaron O'Toole made back in the 2021 election when, remember, he put forward that convoluted idea of a, of a carbon tax, but you would then use the, the resulting revenues. It, I, I won't even get into the details because I still don't fully understand them. But the point was, I think him and his team were making the bet um, that they needed to satisfy that, that threshold so they could then get to the stuff they wanted to talk about, the economy, public safety, etc. It'll be fascinating to see how the, how the polyev-led conservatives confront that question, particularly in the aftermath of, of this kind of extraordinary few days we've been part of. I'll turn it over to Rudyard in a second. Um, maybe I'm over, maybe I'm over reading things here. Um, but I observed that this week um, the conservatives were calling on the liberals in the context of the passage of the budget bill to do two things. The first was to put forward a plan to balance the budget. The second was to halt the increases of the carbon tax, not to repeal the carbon tax altogether. Uh, maybe I, as I said, maybe I'm overreading things, uh, um, uh, but I, I thought it was notable that that the that the demand wasn't a full repeal. I don't know if that means that the conservatives are going to end up in some kind of middle ground where they support the carbon tax as it's been implemented, but but uh, remain opposed to the to the st scheduled increases. But I think that's probably something to look forward uh, to as 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 they kind of figure out how to square the circle on on this issue. Stuart, let me give you the last word. I just I just don't know if it helps conservatives when you know Danielle Smith comes up and says you know. Nothing to see here, folks. These uh, these wildfires, they're they're the results of, you know, um, careless campers. Um, this has got nothing to do with climate. Um, it's got to do with poor campsite etiquette. <laughs> I mean, come on. Come on, guys. Like, it's not people, you know, throwing their Zippo lighters by mistake in the in the bushes. I mean, this is the result of more arid conditions could that could that change some climate models just in fact there might be more precipitation over parts of northern canada than less in the future but we've also just learned in the last week or so that we're now seeing in the in the in the pacific undeniably a large el nino event kicking off and that will suggest that for at least for the next couple of years we will have drier conditions across the top half of North America. I just don't know, Stuart, like why do conservatives go to these knee jerk at times, just almost embarrassing responses to these crises because they do seem awfully defensive about it. Yeah. I actually think it's a direct reaction to the tendency among people who really care about the environment to blame everything on climate change. And, you know, we had this debate about hurricanes and if you look into the science on that, 
maps, they don't actually know for sure. Like the hurricanes might get stronger and be fewer, or there might be more and less strong. It, it's still kind of up in the air. And a lot of this stuff, once you dig into it, you know, there's nuance. But I think you're right that it, politically, it's a big loser to start, you know, splitting hairs on this stuff. And I think what you need to do if you're a politician is think about the parents who are dropping their kids off at school when the sky is yellow. They're not going to listen to you talking about, you know, maybe it's not quite climate change. They're going to say, this is really concerning and people need to think about that. And I think as always in politics, it's an emotional issue and you kind of have to read the, you need to, to read the game from that angle. Great insights, guys. Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. The particular count will be following, uh, will be falling. Uh, Sean, are you going to make it out of New York alive? You know, <laughs> What's that movie? It's one of my favorite, Escape from New York. <laughs> What's the guy, the protagonist in that movie? Oh, it's just a fantastic kind of grunge uh, sci-fi film from the 80s. If you haven't watched it, Hub listeners, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. Sean starring in the remake <laughs> come Saturday. I don't know what's more apocalyptic, uh, leaving the city in, in the film or leaving the city as we're about to do with a, a two-year-old and a five-month-old. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we're coming back to Canada soon. And, and uh, uh, you know, stay tuned. We have a bunch of great content coming up at the Hub. I mentioned uh, Rudyard's too modest to, to mention it, but he's got a really insightful piece on kind of contextualizing this week's interest rate hikes. I mentioned the, the the great analysis we have coming up on on climate change, and and then next week we have some great content, including uh, Roger and Stewart podcasts with Michael Lind on labor markets, a subject we've been talking a lot about, and Ian Bremer on um, on geopolitics. So um, uh, I'm looking forward to being back in Canada and 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 checking out some of the great content we have. Snake Plissken played by Kurt Russell. That was it. Escape from New York. I couldn't uh, let us leave without resolving that mind block. Okay, guys, have a great uh, weekend. We'll talk to you next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.